Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. War by Jack London, first published in The Nation, July 29th, 1911. And uh, we were just looking at the original publication in in The Nation, which is a, uh, I guess, left-leaning newspaper magazine from the UK, also published abroad. Um, do you think that that plays a role in their their purchase of this story from London? Well, it's 1911. So in, in England, uh, everybody is assuming that war is coming. Mm-hmm. It's, it was a time when people were expecting it. In this particular story, the opening gives us a sense that our viewpoint character um, is seeing the, the war on his west and he is afraid that danger will come from the west or the north. So uh, I don't know that the specific of the story was of particular interest to British readers, but I think that the ambiguity about what war means and its moral implications is very much on people's minds in 1911, and this is a great story for that. When you say what war means, do you mean this particular story with the title war or just war in general? I meant the phenomenon of war. Yeah. Although what what this story called war means is part of the point, I think, that it, yeah. it ends up with us not knowing – uh, we don't get a clear moral message, but maybe that is in some sense the, the message, because what it lets us know is that uh, it's hard to know right from wrong when you're in war. Maybe we should sort of say what the story tells us. Sure. Um, shall I? Please. Uh, the story begins with a very tight in view of a young man. Uh, It's a third person narrative throughout, but very, very close observation of this individual, the things that he sees, the things that he feels. It's a third person limited. So we get some sense of him. Uh, It is remarkably well done. The the language gives us so much and we can talk about the, the stylistic skills that London deploys. But what we find uh, as we uh, move from just first seeing him uh, on horseback uh, is that he has a a carbine uh, or carbine, people pronounce it both ways in my experience, um, across the pommel of his horse. And uh, he is, it eventuates a scout. He's supposed to be getting intelligence on the enemy. He proceeds with great care. He comes to a stream. Uh, He does not allow himself to cross it right away because that would put him in the open. So he sits and he waits and he waits. And he imagines 
people on the other side with guns waiting to see if anyone emerges from his side. And just as he's about to go forward and get some water from the stream, which he needs, um, a ginger bearded man parts the leafage on the other side of the stream, reaches forward and over the course of a moment or two, fills his own canteen. We're told that he's only 20 feet away from our protagonist, that the protagonist could not miss at this point range, uh, point blank range. But he doesn't shoot. Essentially, that's the end of what we now discover is the first section of the story. Then says two, and we are some time later, and we are approaching a farmhouse that our protagonist had already had previously approached. This time, there is the evidence of there having been war, battle. He investigates cautiously. He is hungry. He goes into the orchard. The trees are laden with ripe apples. He takes off his shirt and collects many so that he can bring them back to his compatriots. Uh, He eats a bit and then he hears someone approaching. It is, in fact, someone from the enemy. He's already seen that some uh, enemy on horseback and uh, have come to the house. A few have left their horses and are apparently exploring in the house, but he's hidden. But as this person comes toward the orchard, our protagonist has no choice but to either, um, but to make a run for it. He can't withstand all these people. He dashes out on his horse, startles the other person, and manages in a wild ride brilliantly described Mm -hmm. to escape the fire of the the men who are the enemies who are around or in the house they come out to shoot at him they empty his their magazines ricochets hit him it's all sorts of but but he escapes and as he is going forward thinking now he can get there Across from him, the ginger-bearded man arises and shoots him dead. That's the last thing that he hears. And that's the end of the story. Yep. And it is uh, superbly written. Uh, This is very, very good prose in in its description. Um, He knew exactly what word to put where. Um, it's, It's got some beautiful parallel structure and parallel imagery and all that stuff. But there's, there's a lot to say about this uh, story in, um, I think the context of when it was published um, in the context of another story. And also um, just like, what war is this? (laughs) That's the, uh, so I was like, okay, what war is this? It, and of course, the title is so, so not helpful, right? We we don't get any uniform colors, we don't know uh, exactly what year it was set, and yet it's not the American Civil War, and it's not World War One because it ha- hasn't happened yet. Um, I was thinking, well, maybe this is a science fiction story. <laughs> now the problem with that 
is um, what do you mean by a science fiction story? Well, um, typically in a science fiction story, there is some technology or some some uh, future setting that indicates, right? This is actually, he's done something very cute here. He's stripped away almost every detail unnecessary to the telling of a war story. And yet, it is absolutely not the Civil War, given that the rifles have magazines, um, given that um, uh, the uh, carbine and the... Um, the fusillade that comes after him. Uh, oh, there's clips on the ground. So these are these are modern guns for 1911, not modern guns for uh, 19 uh, or 1860s, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, and yet the location also seems to be North America. I I can't confirm that could be Europe, but we've got apples and we've got the kinds of uh, fences that are used in. In North America, you know, on sort of um, frontier uh, homes, this is—it doesn't feel like a European story to me. It could be, but it doesn't feel like one. I think he's—he's he's done something interesting because he's trying to say this is what war is like, and he was not a soldier, right, Jack London was not a soldier, although there's a book uh, called Sailor on Horseback. He did ride ar around, and he did go to war, but he wasn't a soldier. He went to uh, the Korean War, uh, sorry, the invasion of Korea by Japan, um, and reported on that extensively in 1904. So he's very familiar with war, but I still think that there's another influence here, and I think it's a, a story by Ambrose Bierce. Do you know? I agree. I was thinking I exactly of it. Yes. Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. It's a brilliant story. Bierce wrote a number of uh, Civil War stories. That one stands head and shoulders above almost all others, at least in the public mind. And uh, in searching for details on this story and just trying to find the publication, I noted that teachers treat this story, or at least some teachers treat this story very much like the way they treat uh, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. It's something to be studied. And looking at what comes up in searches, if you just type in War, Jack London, um, you get the sorts of questions that students are typing in from their teachers' questions, right? They're, they're just looking for answers, like, what is the moral of this? Or what is the... Um, uh, uh, what? Uh, how is metaphor used in War by Jack London, and then there's you know internet answers that you can pay for. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm thinking that this story is like a, a even shorter version of a very short story on occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Um, this one takes about 10 minutes to read. I think that one is closer to a half hour, maybe 25 minutes. Um, and it's it's again set in parts. This one only has two parts. That one has uh, three. And it has uh, a beautiful sort of just storytelling arc in both. But even though I feel like this is kind of Jack London doing Ambrose Bierce, I still think this is a very worthy story and very interesting. I think that um, the connection between the two is powerful, uh, especially for modern readers, because we really sense 
sort of late 19th. We, we, it's a kind of warfare that that has long gone for us. Mm-hmm. You know, there are horses and 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 so on, and and people are fighting across the landscape. There's no airplanes in the air. There's you know it's it's in that way they're alike. Uh, also, both of them have endings that that pull you up short. Mm-hmm. But the Bierce story is, I think, set very explicitly in the Civil War, and it is ultimately about the nature of perception and illusion, what yeah. we see and what we think we see. Um, whereas this story is ultimately complicating not what we see, but complicating what we believe. Yes. This is a more moral story. I think that one of the reasons that is it's more focused on morality as an issue. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the reasons that it is superb, at least as good in what it's doing as Bierce is in what it's doing, um, is precisely that we can't mistakenly think it's North versus South. The word West is capitalized while North is not. The word West is capitalized and used more than once so that we will know this isn't a war we know. We can't sort of thoughtlessly decide if we are Northerners, hey, that was that was it was righteous that we did this. Mm-hmm. Or if we're Southerners, it was immoral that they did this to us. Right? We don't have any allegiance here except that we are seeing things through the eyes of a 24 or 25-year-old. The fact that he's called in the first paragraph a 24 or 25-year-old tells us that, like the narrator, we're just sort of looking at him. We just see him as a young man. We don't have special knowledge, special allegiance. We don't know what the war is fought about. We don't know why he's doing it. And we're even told in one line by the narrator— that he was not particularly brave. He just had the same amount of bravery as an, any ordinary civilized man. He mostly wanted to stay alive. Uh, this is a story that strips away those historical details so that we can actually ask what does war, not the story, but the, the phenomenon, what does war really mean morally? And We need to ask that, the story seems to tell us, because no matter what you may think about war, the great conflict of the North and the South, the coming war in Europe, uh, it all comes down to individuals acting. And the last line, it seems to me, really makes it clear. Do you mind if I read the last two short paragraphs? It's great. Okay, so. He has missed. Right? He, they, they, they've missed him. Uh, but then he sees the, the man with the unmistakable ginger beard kneel down on the ground, level his gun and coolly take his time for the long shot. The young man threw his spurs into the horse, crouched very low and swerved in his flight in order to distract the other's aim. And still the shot did not come. With each jump of the horse, the wood sprang nearer. They were only 200 yards away and still the shot was delayed. And then he heard it. 
the last thing he was to hear, for he was dead ere he hit the ground in the long crashing fall from the saddle. And they, that is the soldiers who had fired at him but missed, watching at the house, saw him fall, saw his body bounce when it struck the earth, and saw the burst of red-cheeked apples that rolled about him. They laughed at the unexpected eruption of apples and clapped their hands in applause of the long shot by the man with the ginger beard. Mm-hmm. It's, ama- and, it's an amazing punch in the gut at the end, right? Incredible. Incredible. So London changes, finally changes our point of view to these others who only see our guy, our guy, because we've been living through his eyes, only see our guy as a clown, as, as you know, oh, look, <laughs> look at how the body bounces. And so we have to ask, among other things, should our guy have shot the ginger bearded man? That's right. Or did he not? And when we ask that question, I mean, should he not have? And when we ask that question, we have yet another question. Since we only know what the narrator tells us, which is mostly what you can see from the outside. Um, Did our guy not shoot the ginger bearded man because he saw no reason to kill him? Or did he not shoot the ginger-bearded man because being only 20 yards apart, if he had, uh, sorry, 20 feet apart, if he had, um, this, the report of the carbine might have brought a whole herd of enemy on him and killed him. Because we don't know whether our guy is an ordinary civilized man being civilized or an ordinary civilized man being scared for his life when he spares the life of the ginger bearded man. But what we do know exactly, it doesn't say. So we don't know whether it is good or bad in war to spare your enemy. We certainly know it is not good to dehumanize your enemy, but on the other hand, as we see by laughing at his bouncing body, but (laughs) okay. So war is bad. Don't dehumanize your enemy, but maybe you do actually have to go to war. It it just it problematizes everything, individual action and the collectivity of war in ways that I think don't lead to answers. But they force us to question ourselves, which may be crucial in 1911 in England, because you have to ask, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I willing to go to war? Yeah, it's 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 fascinating because if you look at it the right way, this is not a parody or you know a cheap copy of or just even a good copy of what Bierce's story does. Bierce's stories is about, you know, it has that circularity that that this one has and it has uh, uh some moral questions uh, going on, but actually it's mar- far more about point of view and about a perception of the world. This one Be- is Bierce's. less yeah. Sorry. This. this Beers. Yeah. Go, go for it. I'm sorry. I just wanted to clarify. You mean Beers's is more about perception? Absolutely. It's it's all about right. per, it's about perception of the world, and about it has it has some questions like what is the like in in Beers's story, the main character is uh, Peyton Farquhar is 
essentially killed because of something uh, he was tricked into. And in a way, we have that parallel here with the um, with the end of uh, part one. We've got two men sitting across a river. Oh, I'll just read this part here. Tethering his horse in the edge of the wood, he continued a hundred yards on foot till he came to the stream. Twenty feet wide it was, without perceptible current, cool and inviting, and he was very thirsty. But he waited inside the screen of leafage, his eyes fixed on the screen opposite side. So we've got this mirroring happening that's amazing. To make the weight endurable, he sat down, his carbine resting on his knees. The minutes passed, and slowly his tenseness rela relaxed. At last he decided there was no danger, but just as he prepared to part the bushes and bend down to the water, a movement among the opposite bushes caught his eye. It might be a bird, but he waited. Again there was an agitation of bushes, and then, so suddenly that it almost startled a cry from him. This is a parallel to what happens at the end of the story too, right? Yep. The bushes parted and a face peered out. It was the face covered with several weeks' growth of ginger-colored beard. The eyes were blue and wide apart, with laughter wrinkles in the corners that showed despite the tired and anxious expression of the whole face. This is not an, the face of an enemy, although it's an enemy in a uniform. It's, it's just another person. And in fact, we get such a detailed look at him that the irony is the important part of the ending, right? It's the fact that this is a ginger-colored beard peering out and a ginger-colored man doing... It's the same guy, right? We have Absolutely. to have that for this story to work as well as it does. And yet, this this is... Um, this mirror of the two look sort of being opposite side of the river, both being thirsty, both looking uh, to help their team, right? And one of them not firing is not paralleled by the ending where, you know, he's got his buddies all, you know, waiting for him to line up that shot. And he lines up that shot and he gets them. And it's, uh, we get a burst of apples, not just a burst of blood, but a burst of apples. And that double, doubleness again is, is amazing. But I, I want to point to the next paragraph right after this this anxious expression on the whole face as to a, a paragraph in an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge that is very important as well. So I'm going to read the one from um, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and you'll see, I think, the connection. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. This is at the point where he's about to be hung, Peyton Farquhar. They were indeed in fact, he is being hung at this point. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He sh looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf, saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to tw twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of water spiders' legs like oars 
which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid beneath the, his eyes, and he heard the rush of his body parting the water. So this is him escaping from his hanging. He's being hung, the rope breaks, and as he goes down into the water, he can see a million a million dew drops on a million uh, blades of grass and every kind of music from every kind of animal that's alive, all the living things around him. It's, a, it's an amazing piece of writing. Um, here's the one from War. Wait, wait, before... Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll wait. <clears throat> all this he could see with microscopic clearness, for the distance was no more than 20 feet. And all this he saw in such brief time that he saw it as he lifted his carbine to his shoulder. He glanced along the sights and knew that he was gazing upon a man who was as good as dead. It was impossible to miss at such a point-blank range. So we don't actually have that entire list, but we have that line with microscopic clearness. Well, he's literally got a... T uh, it could be that he has a not just sights on his gun, but an actual... Um, uh, scope on his gun so that he could look and see with microscopic clearness. We, we've just seen it. The laughter wrinkles on the corner of the ginger bearded man's face um, and how, you know, several weeks growth. He can see exactly. And then he doesn't shoot. So I would see this. Um, I, I think both Pierce and London demonstrate, as you show well from these examples, spectacular ability to give us a sense of someone else's perceptions uh, with great attention to to the physical world around them. Um, we could read more, uh, particularly in the London, we get feelings of sweat, tension, physical, you know, um, reactions, uh, jumping at a sound. I mean, we get all sorts of marvelous, uh, understandable, feelable uh, senses of things. But I do think that it is clear on rereading, at least, if not on first reading, that when Beer says that there is a preternatural acuity to the viewpoint character's sense of what's going on, um, it is, in fact, preternatural. Yes. Beer is letting us know that nobody actually could see all of that. It's it's beyond human capability. This is not something that a normally functioning human brain can do. I mean, you don't feel fish that are nearby you in a spring, in a stream. Um, whereas here, we can feel everything. We can, instead of admiring this delusion that the Hank man has, we can feel what the scout feels in war. I, I think that their skill with with description is is comparable. I think they're being put to different narrative uses here. Absolutely. I, I'd also like to to point out that in both cases, but even more so with London, their use of language of, of vocabulary and, and syntax is easy. Now, it may be easier with London because he comes later. I mean, Bierce is, 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 a, is a writer of a generation earlier. But um, I think it's also that, that London, like H.G. Wells, tries to use comparatively well-known words. He doesn't go for 
oddities. Um, preternatural isn't a word you'd expect a lot with Bierce London. Is, he is absolutely he is an obscurantist. He loves to try and hide the truth of what's going on. And sometimes London. he uses vocabulary to do it. Oh, absolutely, and and scene setting. But London does the exact opposite. He's trying but, to make it 100% clear. He is, but I'd like to point out that like Wells, who also writes so simply that he is often mistaken or has been in the past as a children's author, um, we can see, if we read this with care, enormous erudition behind what London writes. The, on the, within a page into the story, um, in I guess the second paragraph, uh, the the fellow roll, uh, has the sweat stung his eyes unwiped and unheeded because he was so tense and watching rolled down his nose and spattered his saddle pommel. And I thought, oh, my God, a saddle pommel. What the hell other kind of pommel is there? You know, I mean, if you said to me, what's a pommel? I'd say it's that thing that sticks up at the end of a at the end of a uh, of a saddle at the, sword, the, the beginning of a saddle. What? A sword pommel. Well, exactly. There is such a thing as a sword pommel. And it turns out that a sword pommel is a small rounded thing, that any decorative round thing at the end of something is a palm. And the reason that it is called a palm is because it comes from the Latin pomum, which means apple. Yep. And the word pommel actually occurs four times in this very short story, uh, I, given the crucial nature of apples in this story, where their redness is more important to the enemy than the redness of the blood of the man who's been shot, and where we know mythologically that the going and taking of apples and eating them leads to, among other things, death, mm. right? the, the mythic concern for the apple and the repetitive use of the pommel, these are not accidental, I think. I this man has such control over his language. But if you didn't happen to know the etymology or look it up, uh, why well, you just say, well, okay, it spattered his sword pommel, his uh, saddle pommel. Um, this is brilliant writing. And when he switches that viewpoint at the end, he leads us, leaves us asking more and more questions. He I want, wants it. I want to, to be. point out how good your your um, your. I'm just reading the text as you're saying this. Listen to this. Um, again, he led the horse around behind the barn and invaded the orchard. So that taking from the garden, right? <laughs> he yep. runs off away out of the garden. That's the second time invaded was used. The first time is in the house that he comes across in the second in the second the beginning of the second chapter it's yes. and it's a, the house is invaded and he can see the bodies of the blood on the ground the the redness of the cheek of the apple i assume is also reflecting in the redness of the cheek of the ginger-faced man yes i think you're right I'd also point out, by the way, one small weakness that I happen to notice between the edition that you've kindly posted for us and the original publication. Mm -hmm. in, I, I haven't had a chance to compare them word for word, so I don't know if there are any uh, 
vocabulary changes. But I do notice this, that in the edition that we have, it begins war and then it goes, he was a young man, not more than 24, 25 and so on. And then partway through, we get the numeral two. And the two then says another day, hot and breathless. And then we come back to what we find soon is that same farmhouse. The two that appears there is a surprise in the version that we read. Mm. Whereas in the original, there was a one. Right. And it seems to me that what, what London wanted to do initially was prepare us that what we are seeing is only the first scene. And in a sense, he's alerting us that we need to keep all of this in mind because something else will happen. In this version that you've posted, he doesn't alert us to that. And I think that that gives a slightly different reading. And I frankly don't know which is better or which is worse, but um, Mm -hmm. I do think that it makes a difference in what we infer was the the intention of the author, not that we can ever know it. If the author is asking us, though, please realize this is about comparison. From the very beginning, you need to understand it's about comparison. Then the use of two sides and to the east versus wherever we are and alone versus with people and so on. All of those oppositions are a little bit more strongly set up for our notice by having that one in the beginning. Wow. So with an author as good as this, there really is always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.